2: It's about culture now. Isn't Wikipedia already a DAO? Part of politics and part of sports and part of gaming. And it's not just like the future of money anymore.
0: As they push the conversation further with their own criticisms and reactions to the latest Bitcoin and crypto news from around the world. It believes crypto is bad and it wants it out.
2: I'm even old enough to remember when Microsoft was a kind of cool company in Silicon Valley. Ben, you're old enough to remember when telegrams came over a wire under the sea.
0: <laughs> and just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice.
2: Hi, everybody. Ben Schiller from the opinion section at Coindesk, and this is Opinionated, and welcome to the show. We have Danny Nelson. Hello, hello. And we have Anna Bedakova.
3: Hi, guys.
2: Okay, great. I'm going to talk about a bunch of stuff today, and we have a lovely interview with Dan Jeffries. We just want to talk a little bit about DM Meta Stroke Facebook and the collapse of their once fabled and much-hyped Stablecoin project. Danny, this is a pretty big deal, don't you think?
1: Yes. Uh, Facebook's Libra could not survive, not even as Meta's DM, as both brands underwent a renaming in recent years. The DM Foundation or Association has sold its assets to Silvergate Bank for around $200 million, basically admitting defeat and saying, we're not going to be able to get this global stablecoin project across the finish line we may as well recoup some money for investors. Now it's Silvergate's problem. Now it's dead. So this is a very whimpering exit stage left for a project that really took up a lot of our attention for a very long time. And it's amazing to see how far it fell uh, in that time. So what do you guys Uh, think of all this?
2: I think it's amazing. I actually went and interviewed David Marcus, who was the leader of this project in, in Silicon Valley in 2019. And at the time, he was so gung-ho and it's this huge, massive fuck-off company and it looked like they were really going to take over crypto and really dominate. And when he asked him about Bitcoin at that time, he was very poo poo about it. And he said, well, you know, it's a good idea, it's a good initiation, but we're really going to take it on and we're really going to commercialize it and make it sensible for normal people. And now if you listen to him with the collapse of Bitcoin, and I'll quote a tweet from him that he put out uh, this week, Bitcoin is truly leaderless, censorship resistant. And in essence, uh, can never be replicated. It is truly the big bang event of crypto. Basically, he's all in on Bitcoin now and all in on uh, permissionless systems. He's really gone back on, on what he said. So what do you think this says, Anna, about the way in which crypto is going? I mean, surely this is a big kind of signal for open source versus kind of permissioned systems.
3: I just want to say that when all this started in 2019, there was so much fanfare around then it was called Libra. Like everybody was reporting it. Like we were frantically reporting it. I remember I was so annoyed from the very beginning. (laughs) I was like, this is totally like missing the point. I wasn't excited about the project because it was designed as a centralized that is controlled by a single company, even though there was a liberal association. But still you had a Facebook at the helm and that tells you something. And then it was so profoundly grilled in the U.S. Congress. And then they went through these multiple iterations like, okay, it will be not a basket of currencies. It will be like one currency. Okay, it's not Libra. It's Novi. Then it's Diem. It's whatever. And they were really so conquistador, you know, in the beginning. I, I remember they had this job offering on LinkedIn that was basically describing Libra as kind of a you know, global central bank. And then they were like, no, 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 we're not trying to build a central bank. And I was like, well, you, you absolutely were.
2: No, it's interesting. I mean, it had a real sort of catalytic effect though, on governments, particularly because in, in the wake of those hearings, there were a lot of central banks that said, well, if, if Facebook is going to release a stablecoin, we better get on with our CBDCs. And it yeah. was supposed to be a catalyst in China and in the US and elsewhere. So... You know, maybe that is the kind of legacy of this. It had a huge
1: legacy in terms of elevating the issue of stablecoins to a much broader stage. Without Libra and DM, I do not think that the stablecoin discourse would be at the place it is now, just because the notion of a Facebook-type entity issuing a non-state-issued currency to the world for a global consumer base was so daunting for the powers that be.
3: But it's funny that like if you assume that Libra was a nudge to the Chinese digital yuan and then the Chinese was the nudge to any other CBDC projects around the world, now the the prime reason for all that fuss is gone. But the whole game just went so far that you cannot uh, turn it around. I I think the Central Bank of China is like, well, it's a good idea on its own. Right. And, and everybody else
2: are like, "Wow, well, why not? I think uh, another takeaway here and another kind of uh, legacy is for big kind of companies that think that they can come into crypto and can control crypto and take away its kind of open source ethos and create this kind of permission system. This is a bit of a wake up call for you. And I, I think this is sort of similar to uh, enterprise blockchain initiatives that a lot of companies pursued in 2018 and 2019 thinking, oh, Bitcoin's a bit sleazy, a bit dirty. We're going to kind of clean it up and use the technology and co-opt it. Well, I don't think so because Ethereum is still standing. Bitcoin is very much still standing and this project is dead. So that that should really be a lesson to a lot of people about control and centralization.
3: Yeah, but I don't think it is. A lot of people think, well, we totally can rein this technology in and just let it develop in an environment where there will be no dirty crypto, where there will be like just our right and like legal blockchain and everything on it. This is basically what the, the Central Bank of Russia has been suggesting. Like there will be no crypto, but there will be a digital ruble, and there will be like digital assets issued in Russia by the Russian law and like controlled by the Central Bank of Russia. But then you think, you know, really, do you think that people would choose that over cryptocurrency if they once already had a chance to deal with cryptocurrencies? Like that's a big question.
2: Again, I think the US, for instance, is is considering whether to have a, a public stablecoin CBDC, which is controlled by the central bank, or having more of a hybrid approach, which makes the best of the private stablecoin sector, which is much more sort of technologically advanced. And I think the lesson here, again, is to, you know, go with the private sector, go with that innovation, go with, you know, the community. And if you just try and kind of co-op the whole thing, you're really going to come unstuck. So um, anyway, we we better move on. Uh, We're now going to listen to Dan Jeffries' uh, interview that I did uh, with him last week. So Dan Jeffries is a futurist, systems thinker, and essayist for Coindesk. And he wrote a lovely piece for Privacy Week last week. And here was my um, interview with him. Hello, everybody, and we're joined by a very special guest today. That's Daniel Jeffries. He's a renowned futurist and systems thinker. Hi, Dan.
4: How are you doing? Thanks for having me on.
2: Good, good, good. Dan wrote a terrific piece for us for Privacy Week, which is a week that we're doing at CoinDesk devoted to the very important topic of privacy, and it's entitled The Trojan Horse of Privacy. And it looks at the deep history of privacy as an issue in, uh, in the crypto movement and looks at some of the uh, practical questions around how we actually bake in privacy into the design of future systems. So, Dan, uh, just talk about that, that history there, Then, why was privacy so important to those original cypherpunks? Well,
4: I mean, the cypherpunks, you know, were really ahead of their times. And we were talking about folks who were working in the 70s and 80s, and were thinking about where the future was going long before anybody else did. And I think that's the real challenge, right? It's People are very tuned to seeing what already exists. It's very challenging for someone to have a clear view of the future. Uh, the average human being is just not great at it. And they think that the world will be the same. These folks were you know, deep into digital technology and to where the internet was going. And they saw you know, the challenges of where it was going way ahead of its time. In that it would be a battle between encryption and you know, centralized agencies that wanted to break it with the clipper chip. You know, which was basically built in key escrow. And they battled back against those things. The same problems that we're having now, right? We're saying like, let's put back doors into the privacy. Let's make sure that we, you know, back doors into the encryption. Let's make sure that we can break into it. Like you've got nothing to hide. You know, what are you worried about? Kind of stuff that the same things they were seeing it way ahead of their time. And they tried to build these sort of technological means essentially to guarantee privacy and guarantee that, you know, when I shared something, I shared it with just you or that, I could share it with progressively wider spheres of folks. And it just they were able to win on a number of things, like reading the Clipper Chip. But I think the larger problem is that they essentially lost the war, right? And that's where we are today with very much a surveillance economy and mostly sort of low grade privacy almost across the board.
2: That was going to be my next question. How successful you think they've been? Because I mean a lot of people think of crypto as a kind of privacy-enhancing technology, but if you've got to give up your details to Coinbase to make a transaction that doesn't seem like very cypherpunk-ish. So <laughs> uh, do you think we're, we're actually going forward in terms of privacy now, or do you think we're actually making backward steps?
4: I, I think we're going backwards. Like, again, yeah, they, the, 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 they won the key escrow battle, although it occasionally crops up again and again. And they certainly, in authoritarian regimes, that's already the case, right, where they, you know, they have a man in the middle attack in front of everything, and just sort of armies of censors we haven't gone there, but in a democratic solution, or a democratic kind of a- area, you can lose parts of it and still win. And they just require so much KYC uh, across the board that it basically invalidates validates it. So just like you said, you go to Coinbase and you know they know everything about you, and then you look at the the law that they passed that was super broad. Now, where it's like, great, anyone's going to send a transaction, you know, you're going to be sending the information with them, or spend five years in jail, kind of thing. So it almost doesn't matter that there's been any sort of privacy things. Yeah, we've got. Transport layer security and things like that. But the problem is, we store all this data kind of centrally. We're always storing it. It's mandated that we do it. And every time you try to build something like a zero knowledge proof for passwords, that would be fantastic. In other words, the way we store passwords now is I have to hash it, put it in a database, but then you have to send it over the wire and it has to decrypt it and look at it, or it has to look, compare the two hashes, but you're sending it. A zero knowledge privacy would allow me to just never send that password, but prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that you know the password without you ever sending it over the wire. That is clearly a superior system. It would make it so much harder for hackers to compromise individual passwords, whereas now they just go, they hack a database, and they grab you know, all the hashes, and they brute force through it with a rainbow table, and all of a sudden, you've got all these passwords. If they didn't have those centralized, it would be better, but we continue to mandate that you have to have this kind of stuff. It just destroys our ability to do security, right? It destroys privacy. We've, cer- we've almost definitively gone backwards.
2: Right. And what about some privacy coins like uh, Zcash or Monero? Do you see them becoming more popular? And I think people are really saying that these projects maybe not taking off in a a way that we might have expected them to.
4: I mean, look, I think they're popular for a lot of underground things, if we're being honest about it. And I think there's a potential for them to be very popular, especially, maybe not in the short term, but especially as, as sort of centralized powers kill off cash. I've written about this a few times, right, in my articles that I feel cash is going to be destroyed. Like they're going to essentially once central bank digital currencies are there, they're going to effectively kill it off. And it doesn't matter whether it's five years, 20 years or 30 years or 50 years, like it's going to happen and it's already heading there. And so that really turns every coin in your pocket into basically a surveillance tool. And in a tool where you essentially, if you want to crush a movement, you just geo turn off the money. Okay, nobody can do any transactions in, you know, in this section of the, country right now because we're trying to starve out the, you know, the bad guys, right, Uh, wherever we've labeled the bad guys that time. So there's a lot of horrible things that can happen. So I think we could see the rise of those privacy coins in that area is kind of a parallel economic operating system when people realize just how much kind of freedom is lost, you know, with the loss of cash. Privacy is not not just a thing where it's like, great, you know, we got to go buy horrible things on the darknet or whatever, right? It's also just, you know, being able to disagree with something that is mandated in the current situation, right? Being able to disagree and, and also just controlling how you're able to sort of spend them. And in this case, like, you know, not having a detailed profile of I went to Starbucks and gotten an Uber and went to this bar can be recreated later. Like it's my opinion. It's my choice to go to that bar to get that. And, and it's not necessarily shouldn't be in a database that can track my every movement later on. So I right. think that's really important. I think there's a chance they come back and be sort of important later on, but there's a lot of hurdles in front of them now because. The governments really don't want them there. They want to crush that ability to do things in an anonymous fashion. And they want to close the analog hole, uh, and, and, and so they face a lot of pushback. But I think eventually, uh, you know, once CBDS have kind of central bank digital coins have come to dominate, I think they'll they'll probably surge back, uh, probably as an underground thing, but also just as a look. I need to buy something at a tag sale or, or pay the cab drivers so that it, <laughs> they're not building a gigantic profile.
2: Right. So. It's possible that the end of cash, meaning physical cash and the onset of these uh, central bank digital currencies, which might largely replace cash, could lead to a upwelling of a privacy movement, you think, because people won't like being surveilled for the same reason that they like using cash today.
4: My general approach to a system is that there's kind of a pendulum swing that goes back and forth and you go too far to one extreme. Um, It puts too much pressure on the system and there becomes you know, an equal and opposite reaction. It's it's almost like you have like a steam burst that pops up in other places and it starts to break through these cracks, like right. the more pressure you put on the dam. And at some point people right now can't envision what it means to not have physical cash, to not be able to hand five bucks to their friend without somebody knowing it, to not be able to just hand it to the cab driver, you know, and then there isn't a, a thing that says, you know, I... I went to the bar, you know, my wife's going to be mad at me, you know, whatever it is. Right. You know, it's, these are kind of minor things and people don't think about privacy as being important. They tend to think about it as criminal, you know, things, and that's wrong. That's totally wrong way to think about it. It's like, do you get changed in front of the window or do you draw the curtains? Right. There are certain things you want to be private about. And there's a great talk on it. I forget who did this, but it was a Ted talk where they, they said, if you don't care about privacy, then great. Just go ahead and give me the password to your email, your private one, not your work email, your private email. And I would add in today, like your messaging client. And I'm just going to go through it for the next three months. I'm going to monitor it. And anytime I find something interesting, I'm going to post it to the web. Do you still care about your privacy now? When you're talking about polit- sensitive political opinions or you know, your best friend's ugly haircut or you know, how your wife annoys you from time to time or your you know, so-and-so at the office is a jerk. You know, all of a sudden, now you start to care about privacy. So I think when there's too much pressure, when we've taken it so far away, and cash is gone, and we said, like, this is the only thing you can use it for, and people's money get turned off, and taxes are coming out automagically, I think it does create too much pressure. And I do think we see sort of resurgent privacy movement. I don't think we see one in the short term, because I just don't think people can conceive of what this means. Humans tend not to understand the loss of freedom until it's kind of ripped away from them, like in, in a major crisis.
2: And it's quite intangible. Yeah, it's interesting. And you actually said that in the piece, you know, while making a terrific case for, for privacy, you say that, you know, a lot of people, let's face it, don't care that much about it. And that's evidenced by two decades of, of, of the internet becoming less and less private. How do we kind of design privacy into the tech rather than making it a choice, making it something that the consumer or user always has to worry about?
4: I mean, look, if you look at some of the, the technologies like ZK Snarks, which can be extended a lot beyond something like what Zcash has done. It can be used to kind of cascade out information on a need to know basis. And DARPA and some of the other organizations, ironically, US government is even looking at building kind of full-on platforms for document sharing, cryptographic proof that somebody said this, right? And verifiable identities, that messaging, all these kinds of things, right? And they're, they're looking at it certainly for just warfighters, but also for, I think the public could have this thing. It could be something where essentially you're saying, great, I'm sharing my, all of my doctor's notes with my doctor, but only we have that level of privilege. And then if we wanted to share it with the insurance companies, or we wanted to share it with a third party provider or someone else, then we could share just pieces of that information, right? So it becomes a thing where you can kind of open the, the box a little bit more slowly, and it's just much more secure. So I think we can build this platform, uh, it doesn't exist yet. Uh, some people thought I was just saying you know, Zcash was that platform or something. That's absolutely not correct. That's a monetary system where they used it very cleverly. ZK snarks are, are like a nuclear technology for caveman's fire, right? They really mm. can do amazing things. But the thing is, what the, the case that I sort of made in the article is that you just, you can't sell it this way. You can't go, great, here's all this built-in privacy, right? It's I talked to a a group recently that was trying to do stuff for sharing information with kind of children's education in Italy. And I advised them to really start thinking about it as a next-gen kind of need-to-know basis, right? And that's where you can actually sell privacy. You can sell it if it's to protect the children or stop the terrorists, right? But you can't sell it any other way. And so the best way to do this is to build this thing, but then build another value prop, an economic value prop, and a compelling set of features that people get that's not related to privacy at all and that they just can't live without. And then the privacy becomes a gift. It becomes a Trojan horse. But if you try to sell it on the basis of privacy, the other person is not gonna care. They're not gonna buy it. It doesn't matter. But if you can build these other feature sets around it that are compelling and unique, then it becomes something that's you know, truly, you know truly cool. It's kind of like when you made the transition from digital CD-ROMs to the Kindle. You know, Digital CD-ROMs were kind of the future. They were cool, but they were scratchable. You could burn them and they'd fall apart. Like they, they only existed on your monitor with those old cathode ray tubes and they'd burn your eyes out. You can't carry that you know, that big computer around in the subway. But as soon as they were making it easy on the eye, they hid away the medium. It was super compact. It, like, it kept a month or so of battery. Now, all of a sudden, I can keep 2,000 books in my pocket with the same form factor. That's when a technology takes off we've got to get to a point where we can make these sort of other features super compelling with privacy as just the baseline structure of it. And then we've got to change the economics. This is the thing. If you're working in privacy, if you're working in cryptography, you've got to change the economics because right now the only economic system and the unfortunate outgrowth of information wants to be free, which I was sort of always been a huge fan of, information wants to be free. But yeah, but servers and bandwidth. And the people to run it all and programmers, all that, that's not free and you got to pay for it. So the way they pay for it is surveillance and advertising. That's the economy. And if you don't change the economics of it, everyone is going to continue to default to that because you have to make money. No matter what, that's the baseline. You have to make money. And if you incentivize people to do something, they're always going to go in that direction. So you've got to change the economics. I don't know what the economic change is, if I'm being honest about it. I don't know what that brilliant thing that turns the economics to be something that's not based on surveillance. But if you're out there working on this, that's really the thing you should spend more time thinking about. The, the privacy technology exists. It's just a matter of expanding it into a comprehensive platform. What doesn't exist is the economics. And if you're going to spend your time on it, think about it from that standpoint.
2: Maybe just fundamentally needs to be a better product. I mean, people will pay for a better product if, uh, if you offer it to them. So you have a nice, succinct way of putting this statement. You say, uh, make privacy the plumbing, not the marketing tagline, which is a, a good, good summation there. So, I mean, do you feel broadly optimistic about the future of privacy on the internet or, or do you feel we're set for a retrenchment or do you see maybe a cleavage uh, between those people who care about it and kind of go to one sort of version of the internet. And meanwhile, the, the, the other, this other group goes to another um, version of the internet. How do you see it playing out?
4: I mean, when I look at the future, I'm always sort of laying out like large scale probabilities. I always call it doing a Monte Carlo analysis of the future. If you've ever seen like those stock charts where it's got you know, thousands of different lines going on it, but then there's right. like a couple of strong lines as it can go in this branch or this branch. And so I'm always adjusting it. My current feeling is semi-pessimistic about our ability to do this. Like I can kind of see a clear path for it and I can see a number of ways to do it, but it relies on a number of different pieces of unobtainium. Like someone has to come up with a better economic model, a better product, You know, has to build sort of the platform to do it. I think we're going to see pieces of it regardless, right? Just because... You know, zero knowledge proofs and things like that make complete sense from a standpoint of like, we probably will see all the passwords for websites, for instance, kind of upgraded to something like that almost naturally over time. I think that's almost inevitable. But the question is whether it becomes sort of a comprehensive system that fundamentally changes the way that we do it. I would say I'm trending against it. I'm probably 70-30 against it at this point. I feel like we're in, we're in trouble. And I feel like it's going to get to a point where we've got a really go further down the rabbit hole of completely losing our privacy for there to be a backlash that surges it back again. And then it, that's the point where you start to see kind of this steam burst pop and you start to see a change. And that's when it becomes something that potentially shifts that back in the other direction so that privacy becomes like, I become bullish on privacy again.
2: right. I mean, for what it's worth, uh, I think I'm pretty uh, pessimistic, too. And maybe it's a bit like climate change. You, you sort of only care about it when, you know, there's a storm coming and your house is being taken away. So yeah. maybe that needs to happen to people in order for them to really um, jump on board with this. Anyway, um, thanks very, very much, Dan, for coming on. And you can read uh, Dan Jeffrey's uh, excellent, excellent essay for Privacy Week, coined this Privacy Week called The Trojan Horse of Privacy, and we'll link to it in the show notes. Thank you, Dan, again.
4: Thanks so much for having me. Really, really fun. Appreciate it.
2: Anna, what did you think? Pretty interesting guy, don't you think?
3: Yeah, it was really interesting to me that for Dan, it's kind of a a given that we will have that future in which there will be no physical cash. All the money will be digital in the sense of central bank digital currencies, totally surveillable. You know, in that kind of future, we won't have more privacy than now. We'll actually have less because like every penny that we send uh, to whomever will be on that surveillable centralized ledger or maybe somebody will still be able to use cryptocurrencies, and maybe some of them will provide some privacy features. But the most of our economic lives will be on that way, like, totally transparent and totally censorable digital realm.
2: I think it's interesting how we have this kind of pendulum shifts between uh, you know people really wanting privacy and then kind of going the other way and back and forth. It's interesting how the end of cash and the movement to digital form of, of currency is, is maybe going to lead to more surveillance and therefore more need for, for privacy in the future. Uh, what do you think about that, Danny? Well, this reminds me of something that you talked about with Dan, that
1: it's a topic that I don't fully know because I wasn't around for it. But I think I've read the Wikipedia articles and that's the clipper chip. I'm going to guess here, if I remember my Wikipedia knowledge correctly, the clipper chip is the Clinton era Effort yep. to install what amounts to a government-operated backdoor into encryption technology, is that correct? That's correct, yeah. Okay, well, I, I surprised myself there. <laughs> so what was the like, What was
2: the death knell for that? Because I, I assume that that actually failed. Uh, I think it was beaten back in Congress somehow. I think there was a sort of upwelling of, of senators against it. No? Nope. I, I don't know. It was, it was a question, but I, I guess it's heartening to see that such a blatant
1: effort, to install a backdoor into, uh, you know, the internet and into technological capabilities failed, but with the rise of electronic cash, I think we're going to see a different kind of, as we're talking about here, financial surveillance that, or at least the capability to perform financial surveillance that we really need to keep an eye on.
3: But it's actually coming back to the U.S. and U.S. politics and whatnot, and also what we discussed in the beginning of this show. It was. Nobody else but Silvergate Bank who who bought the DM technology. Now, if you think what they're going to do with it, I I would expect them to come to the U.S. government and say, hey, we have all this technology to to make a CBDC. Do you want to proceed with the digital dollar? And then one of our guests on this podcast, Chris Giancarlo, will be probably not so happy about that. We'll see some more competition in the digital dollar field I just cannot think of any other purpose for Silvergate to purchase that because we already have their signet. They are using blockchain technology to to some point for their uh, inner mechanics. Why do they want a whole stablecoin package for them?
2: Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, We'll have to see. What do you think they want it for, Danny? I don't know. I mean, (laughs) putting you on the spot
1: there. Well, yeah, I, I, I honestly don't know. But I, the, why would someone want a, a digital
2: dollar? Why would a government want this? The why would Silvergate spend two oh, million dollars on on technology that's been sort of invalidated?
1: No, I don't think that the technology was invalidated at all. We never really got to the technology, right? We only had the words. We only had the proposals. We never got to the point where we said, okay, we'll look at this in action. And I'm sure that the tech is good, right? It's not the tech that killed. DM and Libra, it's the specter of Facebook around it that right. killed it. The idea of this massive company issuing this massive currency and Silvergate being a financial native that definitely has an interest in supporting this sort of technology. So I think it's actually a really good purchase for them because they're going to redeploy it in a way that maybe competes with JP Morgan's Onyx, which is about blockchain payments between banks. That's right. a private system. I don't know the particulars of what DM sought to be because it never fully formed. But I think that Silvergate's going to wield it in, the, in a different way and they're going to do so much more successfully because they are not Facebook. They are not meta. They don't have
2: that aura, uh, that infamous aura around them. So it might be more of a B2B wholesale banking type it, application? It, it
1: might be, it might not be, it, but I don't think that the tech itself has been invalidated. I think that it was just really, really just the idea of a company like Facebook having such financial power that really was the problem. And right. separating that from whatever tech they're selling, the tech assets they're selling, will probably mean that it can actually develop to a actionable place.
2: Right. I mean, I think that's really true that you can't really separate the kind of the story of Libra DM and the story of Facebook and the backlash against that company over the last few years. It's kind of hard to say. The payment project failed because of the payment project. I think it failed more because of the kind of atmospherics around Facebook as a big live political issues these days. Anna, you want to say one last thing?
3: I think yes, but among other things, I'm still very skeptical about the, the whole concept of CBDCs. So- I'm still not sure that all the governments that are talking about or all the central banks that are talking about issues, CBDC will end up doing that. But like, if they do, if we're really heading towards the future that Dan is envisioning, you got to think about your privacy options and configuration now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's time. It's time to think where your money are and how you manage your privacy right now.
2: All right, guys. Thanks very much for coming on. This is Opinionated. That was Anna Badakova. And that was uh, Danny Nelson, uh, looking as good looking as ever. Michelle Mousseau is the producer here and we'll wrap this up. See you next
0: week. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to Opinionated with Ben Schiller, Anna Badakova, Danny Nelson and guest Dan Jeffries. Today's show is produced, announced and edited by Michelle Mousseau. Our theme song is by Ellison. Have any questions you would like the team to answer or any comments, we would love to hear from you. So please reach out to us at podcasts at coinest.com, subject line opinionated or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening.